0: Hello everyone and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. My name is Jonathan Van Maren and today I want to do something a little bit different than we usually do on the show. We often examine social issues, we do a deep dive into abortion culture, we take a look at uh, the trans phenomenon from the perspective of authors, researchers, survivors of the lifestyle. But today I want to talk to Christopher Rufo who is the director of the Discovery Institute's Center on Wealth and Poverty. There's been a lot of discussion over the last several years on how Trump won in 2016, a look at the voters that turned out in the Rust Belt, that turned up in these lost American cities and voted for change, voted for Trump because essentially they were desperate. They felt like nobody was listening to their concerns and they badly needed somebody to be their voice in Washington, D.C. J.D. Vance's magnificent memoir, Hillbilly Elegy, which examines his life uh, in the Rust Belt is one book that's been sort of vaunted as, uh, as an explanation for why so many voters turned out. And Christopher Rufo's latest film, America Lost, which tells the story of three forgotten American cities, does an even deeper dive than Hillbilly Elegy, because he takes a look at the conditions that created this crushing poverty. And the film, which I, I watched several weeks ago, is really, really moving because w- the scenes that you see in these cities in, you know, Youngston, Ohio and, and parts of Memphis, Tennessee and Stockton, California some of these scenes look like 1945 Berlin or they look like, you know, Aleppo uh, after the Civil War and Syria had ravaged it and this is, this is the United States of America in the year 2020 and the people who live among the ruins the rates of family breakdown are staggering, homelessness, poverty, addiction, crime Time. These things are, are not very well understood, but they do need to be understood. So this documentary profoundly moved me. I wrote a review of it for the American Conservative, and I think that going forward, conservatives and especially social conservatives need to do a better job of understanding the conditions that so many fellow citizens live in and look towards creating policies that actually address uh, their issues, that address their lived experiences on the ground, especially when we look at family breakdown. I wrote another column recently for the American Conservatives uh, for the American Conservative pardon me on the realignment the potential uh, for an alignment between social conservative policies and a more family oriented economic policies that can start to address some of these problems and potentially create a new base uh, that the Republican Party can work towards I've talked about that a lot on this show with people like Mary Eberstadt we've talked a lot about the policies that are being implemented in Hungary and other countries and I thought that Christopher Rufo's document America Lost which aired on PBS he's directed four documentaries for PBS Netflix and other international television stations really helped me understand what it is that's actually taking place and understanding the problem on the ground uh, in a real way I think is the first step towards realizing what we in social conservative circles can can really do about this so Christopher Rufo agreed to come on the program. He's a magna cum laude graduate of Georgetown University. He's a Claremont Institute Lincoln Fellow. He's appeared on NPR, CNN, ABC, CBS, HLN, and Fox News. And now he's come on The Van Maren Show to explain what he saw, explain his experiences, and explain the conclusions that he's reached as a result of of directing his latest film, America Lost. This is that conversation, and I hope you find it as enlightening as I did. (laughs) So I guess I'll uh, start off by sharing a little bit with the listeners about yourself and your work.
1: Yeah, I'm Christopher Rufo. I am a writer and filmmaker. Um, I cover social and political topics. And for the last few years, I've focused on poverty, homelessness, addiction, mental illness and uh, progressivism and critical race theory.
0: There's a lot there. Um, what, what sort of work are you doing on critical race theory as a side note?
1: Yeah, I've, uh, I have I did a series of investigative reports over the summer uh, where I was kind of exposing and documenting uh, critical race theory trainings in federal agencies. And um, I worked on a the report of these stories. Uh, I had a, a, a feature segment on Tucker Carlson, and then um, the president saw it and uh, issued an executive order uh, banning these trainings from the federal government. So it was a uh, it was a, a very exciting summer uh, project that I worked on.
0: Yeah, not everybody's summer projects end with an executive order from the President of the United States.
1: <laughs> I know. <laughs> Certainly mine haven't. So, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I don't know if I'll be able to replicate it now, looking how, seeing how the election goes. But, uh, um, but it, was, it, it was a lot of fun. And I think it ties into my other work more broadly on uh, poverty and, uh, and, and those kind of cluster of issues. Uh, so it, it was really kind of um, a, a great lesson in how do elites think about poverty and race and class? And then how, does, how do those issues of poverty, race, and class actually play out in real life, which I captured uh, in my film?
0: yeah so let 's talk about the film because one of the things I found fascinating about it was when I started watching it um, I was prepared to see a lot of a lot of shocking imagery. I was prepared to to get sort of some boilerplate solutions at the end of the film, explaining how money here or money there you know was going to fix this problem you know a sort of uh, a recasting of of lyndon b johnson 's war on poverty. but I got something a lot different right you go through through three major cities. And just maybe start off by telling us what you found when you went to those cities and, and, and the history that you explored like how did these cities go from boom towns to the ghost towns that you show on your film
1: yeah it's a, it's it's a really good question I think I, I approached the film probably a, a, with a lot of the same kind of mindset and background ideas as you did watching it and I I really kind of as I was setting out at the beginning to go to these cities, to find the cities, to kind of figure out how to conceptualize the film, I thought um, my assumption was that these are predominantly economic problems and public policy problems, Um, both what got these cities into trouble, what led to their decline, and also what solutions, you know, could take them out of these uh, kind of really deeply Kind of destructive cycles of of poverty, and after I spent months, actually months, and then you know a year, I realized that I had it at this point kind of all wrong. That the the economic and public policy questions at this point are are really secondary; they're almost surface level, and the actual poverty that you see in the film that affects people uh, in real life is is much deeper than that it 's social it 's cultural it 's personal it 's spiritual it's it 's really kind of deeply embedded in everyday life m- not simply just the economic realm or the public policy realm and there 's a lot of debate right the question you asked is what got these cities into trouble and we, we seem to be stuck there and there 's a lot of good answers and I think that um, you know it could be everything from the kind of process of creative destruction and how industries change and and lose competitiveness. It could be um, kind of democratic machine labor union run cities that fall into a cycle of corruption uh, and political incompetence. It could be uh, the free trade agreements that uh, kind of outsourced a lot of the key industries in these cities. It could be overregulation. I mean, it could be there's a lot of plausible left and right-wing explanations. And I think there's some truth to all of them, frankly, uh, having spent a lot of time there. I don't think it's just one thing led Youngstown or Stockton or Memphis into decline. But I think the problem is that we spend so much time debating what happened 40 years ago um, that we don't actually really think what is the reality now. And so I, I really switched focus to thinking less You know, what happened and engaging in that kind of stale debate, and more trying to say, what is the phenomenology of poverty right now? How do people experience it? How does it hold people back? How does it manifest itself in daily life?
0: And so, what did you find on on that score?
1: I mean, obviously, economics is a huge part of it, right? I, I don't mean to discount that. Obviously, you know, po- poverty—the the kind of shorthand for poverty—is is a kind of economic threshold. So, the economics matters, and certainly, people, especially in places like Youngstown, um, where they lost kind of catastrophic loss of industry, those stories still matter to people. But I think what I found is that you know, thirty years later, thirty years after the kind of um, kind of collapse or crumbling of these Uh, cities of especially kind of lower, kind of lower levels of education, uh, uh, unemployment. 30 years later, it's really kind of burrowed itself into the the social institutions. And that I think is really the most important, important insight in the film. Most important content or material in the film is that um, you have kind of, I I think most acutely this, this collapse of family, and this is something that mostly people on the right have documented, but I, I think we 've almost underestimated the power of that and and you have communities that have you know you know thousands of residents in a zip code you know six to ten thousand residents um, where there are only a handful of traditional two parent households and um, this is really like a new social order it 's something that People were concerned about in the 1960s when the kind of rate of single parent households in certain demographics was about twenty five percent now in certain neighborhoods of all three kind of dominant racial groups in the United States um, where it's at virtually hundred yes. um, percent I think that's that's a, a tremendous thing and then I think you you look at the kind of knock on consequences of 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 kind of uh, the stripping of the social safety net the loss of uh, faith communities, the loss of um, uh, other forms of kind of social organization. And you get this really uh, kind of brutal world of the black market, of uh, crime, of uh, addiction, um, and death. And that's something that I saw over and over that really hammered away at these places. And I think there's really no reason that kind of lower class communities – have to be this way. It wasn't that way in the past. It's not that way in, in other countries uh, where the actual kind of income is even much lower than it is in the United States. Um, so I, I don't believe that it's inevitable that you know, that lower class is kind of synonymous with, uh, with violence, addiction, and destruction and family breakdown. Uh, I think that it's happening for a reason that we have to uncover and we have to try to reverse. Um, And we have to look, you know, to other examples where it's not the case, where actually being on the lower end of the income scale doesn't strip you of your basic dignity. Uh, And that to me is really the most important um, question. The most important question isn't, you know, how can we get, you know, Youngstown residents a a computer science boot camp and and ship them off to Silicon Valley to become coders. Uh, that to me is just the most ridiculous kind of policy prescription that somehow is you know lauded uh, and 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 seen as the way out. No, my 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 question is, how can we make for people who don't leave Youngstown, for people who don't get college degrees, how can we make cities like Youngstown a place where they can have a dignified life, a place where they can raise a family, a place where they can have Uh, even kind of blue collar employment uh, that provides enough uh, for them to have a meaningful uh, life. And that, that to me is really the question uh, at the heart of the film.
0: No it's so interesting because one of the things I thought watching the film was was something that you just referred to is I, i've been to thirty two countries i've been to a lot of very very poor countries i've you know um, had meals with people in homes that would be considered you know rock bottom poor in, in in most places in North america and yet there was a father a mother often grandparents you know they were they were they were very very happy and so not to head off into cliches about how you don't need money to be happy it was the people there the the children essentially had a protective shell around them still by virtue of having parents the boys had fathers teaching them uh what to do um the the girls had fathers to protect them you know they had a nurturing mother present in the home who wasn't constantly distracted was simply just trying to scrape together enough to get them through the next day Uh, and even when they were doing that you know they were in it together they were they were a unit and watching this that was so noticeably absent And so I was wondering, I read Tucker Carlson's book, Ship of Fools, when it came out last year, and I noticed that he, to the horror of some on the right, actually said that Elizabeth Warren's book, um, The Two-Income Trap, is one of the best books he's ever read. I was at uh, the National Conservatism Conference in Washington, D.C., where he spoke last summer, and he again made a pitch for that book and basically said, this this book is better than anything I've read coming from the social conservative think tanks in 30 years because what it's all about is if a father can't raise enough money to sustain his family, the father loses his dignity. When he loses his dignity, he starts to to self-medicate with drugs, with drink. He becomes an awful person. He can become his family's worst problem instead of their greatest Protector, and then once the father goes, all the data indicates the family starts to fall apart. And so, it's in our day of of, of talking about the empowerment of women, which is a good thing. It's somehow not uh, as acceptable to talk about what these shifting economic structures have done to fathers and what that consequently has done to the families. What were your thoughts looking at those family structures about the importance of fathers and and the gap and the void they've left behind?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's, <clears throat> again, a kind of huge schism and, and and chasm between the elite discourse and the actual experience of people uh, in the lower class. And, you know, it's kind of fashionable to say, you know, it, it, amongst kind of the wealthy or the kind of cultural elites to say, well, anyone, you know, a single mom is empowering, it's liberating, it's great. Uh, They can do everything, you know, you don't need a man. Uh, And yeah, if you are a kind of multimillionaire, you know, pop star, uh, you could probably adopt a child and be a single parent and be fine because you could essentially use the market to shore up all of those missing social pieces through kind of hired help. But if you are, you know, in Memphis and living in a public housing project and you're a single mother with three kids and no high school diploma, your life options are so severely limited uh, that it really is, is a, an absolute tragedy. And if you talk to the people who've experienced that, um, you know, the first thing that they'll say, oftentimes kind of with tears welling up in their eyes is, I want my kids uh, to get married before having their own kids. I want them to graduate high school. Uh, I want them to have a, 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 a good man, a good, a good husband. A good father for their kids because you know I I did it this way and I can see that the damage that it, that is done and and in, in a weird way you know a lot of the folks I talk to in the film are not really political they're not partisan that's really not in their kind of interest but they're saying the things that conservatives have been saying for a long time um, from a place of experience and I I think that is really tremendously valuable and I think that especially if you're at that low uh, kind of lower end of the education spectrum or the income spectrum. Um, having two parents is, is the kind of the ticket out of poverty, period, full stop. That's it. Um, and I, I think it's really interesting. Uh, going back to your, 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 point about having traveled in, in, uh, in other countries, I, I did the same as a, as a filmmaker, many places around the world. And we're in this really bizarre place in the United States where, I'm kind of honestly borrowing the language and conceptualization from some of my friends on the left where uh, we have an economy, but we don't have a society. Um, It's very strange. We have, you know, even the poorest people, if you're at the kind of bottom quintile, um, your average, the kind of bottom quintile in the United States um, is equivalent to the median income in many of the poor European countries. So the people who are poor in the United States have a middle-class income in Southern European countries. So we, we can't say that it's just economic poverty that's happening. But what we don't have is we don't have a kind of stable, structured, um, kind of diffused society. We, have, we don't have the kind of institutions of civil society, of family, of local community – of, of kind of bottom-up political organize, organizing that poor European countries uh, have, and even some third world countries have, frankly. And, and again, I think this plays into Tucker Carlson's point is as, as kind of conservatives, we've doubled and tripled and quadrupled down on the kind of free market, which is great, support it, awesome. So to the point though, where we've kind of pushed that kind of GDP, we've pushed the median income uh, to an extraordinary place but what we've lost sight of is that, meanwhile, we've shredded the social institutions, especially at the bottom. And I think a, a true conservatism has to balance uh, the kind of free market kind of protections and impulses and policies uh, with a honestly equal or greater concern uh, for that society portion, that kind of social fabric portion uh, that I'm afraid that we've really lost sight of uh, in the past uh, half century.
0: It's so interesting because your, your documentary was implicitly critical of both sides of the spectrum because conservatives no longer know what they're conserving because you can conserve income, as you say, but if, if I watch your film, they, they they don't have anything left and what they want is not what they have. And then on the left, you often have this, well, we can't judge anybody's behavior because we want people to be liberated. Well, it's liberated from what and to what? And your film shows what they're being liberated from and what they ended up once they were liberated. So both sides are, 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 are equally to blame in the way they feel Frame the problem, and I was thinking a lot actually um, watching your film, and and you just mentioned you're going to borrow some terminology from your friends on the left, and I'll do the same. Is 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 the concept of privilege? I find that a, a, one of my larger problems with the left is not that I disagree with some of their framing; it's they're screaming in the wrong direction, like they're barking up the wrong tree. Like watching your documentary, I was really reminded again that I am a tremendously privileged person. Um, not because, uh, not because of my skin color, my, my grandparents, you know, fled post-war the Netherlands after, you know, it was sort of, it was sort of ruined. They couldn't find a place to live because it had been so devastated. So like thousands of other people, they picked up and they moved to North America. They had no money. They had to, you know borrow money from a train conductor <clears throat> to buy food on, on the way across the country, um, but it's because that sacrifice was for their kids, and their kids sacrificed for the next generation, which would be my generation, and I had those two parents, that has made me a, an immensely privileged person. The fact that I had a mother and a father, a father who taught me how to work, that taught me, you know... How to tr- how to treat women, how to live my life, like all of these basic skills. When I was watching your documentary, uh, the, 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 the fellow at the end uh, that the film sort of uh, wraps up with who who has made this decision to stay with stay with his wife as they have their second child and so determined to give his child what what his father hadn't been around to give him. It struck me that as he's breaking the cycle, that what we're seeing is is a loss of cultural knowledge. It's it's not being passed down. Young men aren't being taught how to live, how to work, how to act. So many of the things that they 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 do to women and their interactions are because they were raised on digital porn. Not a good father. Um, you know, women are, are repeating the same mistakes of their mothers, and we just we just have this entire mess. Is there a way we can start framing the conversation in terms of privilege? Of saying, you know what? Um, conservatives, it's very easy for us to say, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and here's where I'll borrow more left-wing language. I was born with bootstraps, and that's because I was born into a family with two loving parents. Um, so that, that, that sort of put me on a path to success. I, I would have had to screw up a lot of things uh, in order to not make it, in other words. right? The deck was stacked in my favor. You look at these people, their social safety net is so thin. Um, that like it's one wrong step and a steep drop to the bottom at, at which there's despair, addiction and, and, and a self-perpetuating cycle.
1: Yeah, that's right. I, I, I think, I, you know, the privilege discourse is 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 really something that is remarkable because the, the kind of cultural elites that have have kind of formed this discourse uh, and use it. Uh, not as a call to, to greater responsibility or to kind of a, a noblesse oblige, or uh, they use it as a weapon to attack people and humiliate people and shame people um, for their skin color, which is so bizarre and awful and just kind of cringeworthy. And pri- privilege is a kind of multi-dimensional calculation. I have privilege in you know, we both do probably in part because of, of, our, of our kind of European heritage. There's some, some truth to that for sure, uh, in part because we are highly educated, uh, had two parent households. I don't know about you. I grew up in a, a fairly affluent household. My father wasn't privileged. My father came from nothing. He lived in a, uh, a, a, a shanty town uh, with no running water, no electricity uh, after World War II in Italy. Uh, and took a, a third-class bottom-of-the-boat ticket to the United States. I mean, it's like, and, and his father, my grandfather, went through fifth grade. Uh, that's it, was a tailor. Uh, and then his father was a feudal serf. I mean, it's like, you know, so privilege is complex. It's not kind of innate or inborn. It's not a racial category. The people in Youngstown, Ohio, that are on the kind of white working class in uh, Youngstown aren't privileged. Um, In fact, they're just as kind of unprivileged as their counterparts in Memphis and Stockton. So you have to look at privilege from a number of different places. It's class, it's education, it's race, it's, uh, it's in some cases, gender, it's uh, upbringing, it's family structure, it's all these things. And we've unfortunately kind of narrowed it to only one category, and then it becomes this really destructive and kind of divisive racial issue when I think there is a a kind of argument to be made for privilege and people who are privileged from all of those different factors um, should try to share that the kind of knowledge and blessing and structures of privilege with others and what that would look like is to say to, uh, to to as a society to say these things work these things will give your kids privilege regardless of your race Uh, regardless of your gender. It is having a two-parent household. It's having uh, at least one person in the household working full-time throughout the year. It's keeping your kids uh, in the kind of uh, education, finding the best education you possibly can for your kids. It's uh, having a a society that is uh, organized in a way that, that perpetuates the common good. And it's designing policies that can empower people even at the bottom. It's a whole series of things. And Instead, we have this really disgusting, uh, kind of, kind of, uh, uh, what's the word? The this kind of um, deterministic rhetoric, where if you are this, you will be this way forever. Mm-hmm. If you are this, you're a victim, and society mm-hmm. owes you, and it's gonna, and it's up to us to provide the thing that was stolen from you. It's really this kind of brutal zero sum deterministic language, and I, I think that the the, the f- making the film and spending so much time in these communities shows me that the people that are actually stripped of all privileges of all different racial backgrounds um, are have an idea of the good. They have a kind of innate sense of what they want. They want a family. They want meaningful work. uh, They want a society that works. They want safety. They want education. They want a future for their kids. We have to secure that for them. And Mm -hmm. the kind of privilege that I have um, and, and, and you might have, I don't know. And, and others have that are kind of in the policy space or leadership space or, or corporate space That's our obligation. Privilege does not require me to say I'm ashamed of who I am. Privilege requires me to have some obligation for others. And that's how I think we need to to, to change the, the kind of discourse around it.
0: Yeah, and one of the other things that I, I, I've really been wanting to ask you, because after you you know spent all this time in those communities, uh, one of the things we've discussed a lot on this show, I recently spoke uh, with Mary Eberstadt on this subject extensively, is, is a lot of the policies that we see imp- uh, being implemented in Hungary right now that very much interest me. And one of the difficulties on the American right, and I've had discussions with pro-life and pro-family leaders about this particular topic on, on Hungary-style policies, is right away people say, oh, you know, welfare systems, social welfare state, et cetera, et cetera. A welfare state replaces the father, attempts to replace the family, and I think results is partially responsible for what we see happening in those cities that you show in your film, is that the, the state has attempted to replace the family, and it's brought nothing but misery. What um, Orban is trying to do in Hungary is is to essentially use financial incentives to 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 sort of like— fraud people in the right direction, right? When he has policies that essentially says there's massive tax breaks if you get married. Um, we're going to incentivize marriage. We're going to disincentivize divorce. We're going to start, you know, m- m- like m- m- maternity uh, benefits while you're still pregnant to discourage abortion, which has result in a plummeting drop in the abortion rate. Um, your, 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 your rate of taxation is going to plummet every time you have a child to the point where now if a woman has her fourth child, she doesn't have to pay income tax for the rest of her life, right? Is that true? Yeah. Oh yeah. my God. And this well it's it was it's been put forward, it hasn't passed yet, but Orbon Orbon runs a tight ship, so it'll pass. Um and 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 so I don't look at what he's doing. As welfare state. It's not replacing the family. What he's doing is providing incentives to make the right decisions that will inevitably make people happier. The divorce rate over there is plummeting. The marriage rate is is going up because right now we have a set of financial incentives that often discourage uh, families, that discourage the father from staying in the home. Um, sometimes that encourage out-of-wedlock birth because if you're out of money uh, and the government's going to give you a, a big fat check every month, which I don't necessarily oppose. If they need it, they need it. But it, it's still encouraging behavior that's perpetuating the problem rather than reducing it and so i've struggled talking to, to fellow conservatives uh to to differentiate between government incentives and intervention versus a welfare state one of which i appro- oppose and as part of the problem and the other w- of which i think uh in the three or four countries that's being tried is actually contributing to a, to a renaissance of family life what are your thoughts on 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 all of that if i can just dump that all on your lap for a moment
1: no, no i'm glad you did yeah i I've been thinking a lot about that and and I kind of sidestep it, sidestepped it in the film. Yes. In the sense that I I don't make policy prescriptions. I don't, I don't say this is how we should restructure things because I I kind of realize like the film is about the people. It's about what they can do. It's not really about policy and any kind of two minutes of narration saying this is the solution will will be kind of too narrow, but Mm -hmm. I've been thinking a lot about it though on the side as kind of more intellectual uh, question. And I think what you're the kind of heart of what you're saying is true. Is that um, conservatives have basically said we need to kill big government, we need to get rid of the welfare state, we need to defund it. I mean, that's been the kind of rhetoric since really Barry Goldwater in 1964, and. It's now what sixty years later. I mean, it's uh, seventy-five years later. Whatever, whatever the math is, it's still early in the morning for me. But we've tried it. You know, yeah. that was Reagan's rhetoric. That was the Bush and it's like it never works. We've never been able to do it. In fact, conservative presidents have, in the United States, have expanded the welfare state. Famously with George W. Bush.
0: So, well, it's because it's like we, we, as you say, we get rid of all that stuff, and then what? And the conservatives never seem to have a, and then what?
1: Well, they're kind of, they're kind of been kind of captured by this libertarian idea that once you get rid of it, you know, you can get rid of it and everything will change. And maybe that's possible, but politically uh, it's not feasible to get rid of it. That's just a fact. So I think what, what I would think is the, 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 the the real next step for conservatives, is to say the Reagan rhetoric of getting rid of it and, and demonizing the kind of welfare queen or whatever. That's not going to work. It hasn't worked in the past. It's not going to work in the future. So what we need to do is we need to offer the working class a better deal than the welfare state of today. And I think part of it is basically saying we want to help your family. We want to incentivize family. We want to uh, provide a dignified uh, life. And and my idea that I'm kind of toying with and, and trying to work out the structure this coming year is, how can you, uh, in, in essence, redistribute the welfare state? Uh, because one of the mm-hmm. problems with the welfare state is that it, it, it's, it is kind of a top-down, micromanaged, social science-based intervention where, where large portions of the money actually get sucked up by the bureaucracy. So like famously the kind of middle-aged women with master's degree in social work that are you know, getting the $80,000 a year salary, but the person who's actually poor is getting you know, $3,000 a year or whatever. How can you basically make a deal with say, hey, we're gonna make a deal with a broad coalition spanning the left and the right. The right gets, um, we're gonna get rid of the bureaucracy and the administrative state. Uh, You're gonna downsize it drastically. And the people, let's say, kind of more left-leaning say, but we're going to give you the money, uh, people in, 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 that are actually in the kind of working class, and do it maybe as a kind of wage supplement where you can say, um, if you're a, a father that's working uh, full-time at a kind of high school education job and you're making $18 an hour, what if we provided a kind of negative income tax that then made your wage $25 an hour? So incentivizing work, incentivizing family, uh, in in helping people escape that two-income trap, um, and and providing, making the kind of service sector work, uh, the financial equivalent of the old industrial sector work. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we can do it. I think that there's a way that we can do it that actually uh, achieves the kind of conservative goals of decentralizing power away from the bureaucracy. But also, I think what needs to be a core conservative uh, kind of campaign to provide the kind of structure and foundation and incentives uh, for a dignified working class life. I think that's a conservative goal um, and that we should reorient our policies accordingly.
0: No, that sounds phenomenal, and I'd love to have you on again once you've uh, you, you sort of hammered through a lot of that. Because I, I've seen these sorts of policies work in other countries. America is like 50 countries in one country. There's no one-size-fits-all, which is what conservatism is all about anyways. But just the the concept is interesting. And uh, the final point that I wanted to, to briefly discuss with you is uh, your sort of conclusion, which I was not expecting, uh, to be honest. When you start to talk about the, the phenomenal success these, these Christian men's ministries have had, one of them you know, had 80% success rate in pulling men out of addiction um, and, and sort of putting their lives back together. And, and at one point in the film, it stuck out to me. You said, this is deep human to human work. But because we're dealing with humans, this is the only thing that's truly effective. Uh, and it was interesting because I had thought partway through the film as I was kind of trying to wrap my head around what might work. It's the policy brain. What might work to you know, help these people's lives? I thought, uh, you know, like what these people need is a miracle. And then we get towards the end of the film. I'm like, OK, so we've got pastors who represent a God capable of them. It does seem fitting that the film would end this way and so so many of the social fabric uh you know like shredding that you you looked at in all these different cities it, it, these resembled communities that you know they did they just didn't have a soul anymore and there was no animating force to it that's what was missing so maybe just share with us what what you found uh, about the impact of faith-based organizations, about people putting their lives back together. Because I, it didn't come out of nowhere once I you know, went back and I was kind of uh, piecing the film together in my head to write the review. But I was certainly surprised when, when suddenly that was the conclusion of your film. And you say in the film that you didn't expect to make a film about how faith-based ministries and return to faith is one of the key things to reanimate these communities. But there it was.
1: Yeah, I, I really did. not I mean, it was a huge surprise to me. And, and, uh, and frankly, to, to be perfectly honest with you, I, I resisted it for, for a while. I said, well, you know, there's got to be a policy solution, there's an economic solution. And then it just kind of kept punching me in the face over and over when what I saw in all three cities, again, across the three dominant racial groups, three geographic regions, different places, it just kept hitting me over and over like, oh, wow, there's this group over here, they seem to be doing a good job, um, Uh, you know, Oh, I'll tag along going to church with this character or finding out what's the community, what's happening with the community here. And it just over and over to the point where it was overwhelming and I couldn't ignore it anymore that the, actually the the most successful groups that were helping people in real life were not government bureaucracies uh, were not even kind of jobs or corporations, but it was faith based organizations that were kind of like, storefront churches, evangelical churches, tiny Catholic parishes, uh, you know, kind of uh, these really grassroots, the black churches in South Memphis that have been kind of the root and cornerstone of these communities. These were the places that actually turned people's lives around. And in in a lot of cases, it's really naive to think if you give somebody money, their life is going to get better. I know a lot of perfectly miserable, uh, wealthy people. I mean, it's not a guarantee. Uh, it's good, all things being equal. I'd rather have people being wealthy than poor. But what what you realize is that in in, the, in these communities, people are suffering from really deep traumas and social pathologies and interpersonal struggles and family breakdown and no sense of purpose or meaning that has been just... And kind of taken away from them, really stripped uh, from these communities, which I think is a, is a tragedy and not their fault. And the churches were the only organizations that I saw that consistently restored a sense of meaning, restored a sense of structure, restored a sense of moral order, restored a sense of direction for people and actually helped people uh, from the inside out say, what's going on in your life? How can we get you back with your kids? Let's help pay off your um, uh, your, your, your back child support. Uh, let's, let's, let's help kind of reconnect with your, uh, girlfriend or your baby mama. Uh, let's, 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 we know a guy that runs a warehouse, even though you have a criminal record, you could probably get a job running a forklift there. They were really trying to truly help people. And I think the difference is that it started from a place of, this is the right thing to do. That's very powerful. Mm. Uh, And and our social science bureaucracy can never tell you this is right and this is wrong. All they can do is say, this is correlated with better outcomes, which doesn't have the same force. (laughs) Um, And they can also then say, you know, in a personal way, what's going on with you? What's what's happening? And then they can say, I went through the same thing. This person went through the same thing. And I'm here to help you, not because I'm paid to work nine to five at the Department of Child Support and, and, and Human Welfare but because I grew up in this community. I know your cousin. I know your brother. I I visited your uncle in jail um, and come with me. I can actually change your life. And again, it's not something that I sought out to, to, to the story to tell, but that's the story that, that exists. That's the story that works. That's the story that functions at a very high level. And I think that um, whatever your faith back, if you're an atheist or an evangelical or a Hindu or a, whatever your faith background is i think that you need to recognize the kind of the secular consequences of these faith based approaches and i think that they're uh, a really essential um uh, and and i think that part of the agenda maybe not explicitly a policy agenda has to be to revitalize uh, the faith communities, uh, the faith institutions and working class communities.
0: Final question, because I've kept you even longer than we expected. Where can everybody find your film, which I do highly recommend?
1: Yeah, well, you know, all of the the, the members of your audience can actually watch the film for free. It's available at the PBS app. So, uh, if you have the PBS app on your smart TV, you can watch it there. It's available for uh, purchase on Amazon. But uh, if you want to watch it for free and, and in the full length film, it's available at americalostfilm.com slash premiere. Uh, that's americalostfilm.com slash premiere. Uh, you can watch the trailer, enter your email, and watch it for free.
0: Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about all this.
1: Thank you. It's great to talk to mm-hmm. you.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Christopher Rufo of the Discovery Institute's Center on Wealth and Poverty. I do highly recommend his documentary, America Lost. If you want to subscribe to this podcast, please head over to LifesightNews.com. Check out the podcast tab. You can subscribe to the show. Check out past shows. We've been having phenomenal conversations like this every single week. And you would, I think, get a lot out of those conversations if you want to understand how our culture got to this point and what we can do to begin the long road towards recovery. Again, thank you so much for joining us this week and we do hope you'll join us again next week.